The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, the week on The Right Hook here at Newstalk is coming to an end with me, George Hook, and we've got some of the outstanding items of today's show that you can listen to just in case you miss them. My thanks to all of you uh, who sent me all kinds of lovely messages today on Twitter or Facebook or indeed to my phone. Uh, text messages, got ones from obviously predictable friends and family, but some really surprising ones from people I didn't imagine. It was pretty special, I must say, to wake up this morning in Cork City 75 years after I'd woken up in Cork City for the first time in a very different place now from then, but uh, then to go and play golf with my son, George III, um, and me, George II, I thought fondly of uh, everybody Yeah, over the last 75 years uh, who were crucial to me actually arriving here today. So it's been a, a pretty special day for me, and thank you, everybody, for making it so. And uh, the Brendan O'Connor had a cutting-edge show last night on which I made a 60-second a, a contribution. But I did get a, an email from Paula, a stay-at-home mum who's 34. She was... Uh, in her living room, sorting out the washing, and her five- and eight-year-old sons were asleep, and uh, the husband was out for a a well-deserved but rare pint. And uh, she was listening to me talking about heaven and God and faith, and she, like me, uh, doesn't believe stories of three wise men and gardens of Eden and, uh, you know, Noah's Ark and everything else, and she wonders... How is she going to explain all this to her kids? And then that uh, final sentence meant a lot to me because she said, no matter how many examples of nonsense I find within religion, and there are many, I will never ever falter in my belief that one day I will end up in a place of peace and happiness and calm, a place called heaven. And if God or Jesus or no one is Arca there, I'll take it as a bonus. That was an absolutely super email, and thank you so much. Particularly, it comes from uh, a section of society that is continually under threat uh, from those who believe there is only one opinion now. That's their opinion, and that anything that strikes as conservative is quite simply wrong. Now, of course, uh, if you uh, get your train in Cork, you'll be getting it at Kent Station, named after um, one of the heroes of the revolution, uh, who, in fact, of course, uh, was the only person shot in Cork. Most of the executions took place in Dublin. But uh, there's a picture this morning on the Cork Examiner of a pay meter uh, in front of uh, the monument to Thomas Kent. And uh, many residents have uh, labelled it as an affront. And, of course, not only is it an affront uh, to a very important person to Cork and to Ireland, but it's actually an affront to any kind of planning. Like, what Egypt actually thought uh, 
that that was a good idea, that he couldn't move it 10 feet left or 10 feet right. I just, if, you, if you're passing the news agent, have a look. It's on the front page of the examiner. And I'm sure, like me, you'll be astonished that anybody thought uh, it was a reasonable idea. Well, a six-year-old Melbourne girl has won the right to wear trousers at school after 9,000 people signed a petition. Do I have a problem with that? No, I don't. Do I have a problem with uh, a six-year-old Melbourne male who would win the right to wear a dress to school? Then I do. Because I actually believe that the idea of strengthening gender ideas in children is actually very important. I actually believe that a man has certain qualities which are very important. Similarly, a woman uh, has qualities that are very important and they are, I believe, unique to those sexes. Therefore, if we mix kids up, and the problem with this six-year-old is that the six-year-old girl who wants to wear trousers just wants to wear trousers. And, of course, we have no problem with that. But it becomes then for uh, a huge number of people who have a different idea in their heads that this innocent six-year-old is then a patsy for a whole pile of people who want to change it, the way we dress, the way we act in school, the kind of toilets we go to, uh, everything. And so I'm thrilled for the kid. Good luck to her. I'm worried about the kind of people that might have supported her. I was talking to somebody recently and they said to me that Pascal Donoghue is going to be the next leader of Fine Gael. I was astonished. I thought it was Vradgar or Coveney or Fitzgerald. But no, my expert said, it's going to be Pascal Donoghue. Well, anyway, this, he was on Pat Kenny this morning and he was talking about legislation passed in a doll in which there is minority government. New politics as we have now with a minority government is not necessarily code for better politics. We have a risk of bad ideas becoming bad bills and becoming bad law. I don't believe we're at that point yet because we agree with the objective of what they're looking to do, but we believe the framework is wrong. But you see, the problem here is Pascal Dono is essentially saying that um, if you have a government uh, with a majority, then they'll only pass good law and you only have bad laws if you have a government that is a minority. That's not actually true. I think it's reasonable to suggest that Alan Kelly's decision uh, to charge people for recycling bins was a bad idea and Coveney was quite right to overturn it. But that bill was passed by a government with the largest majority in history. So therefore, I, I think Pascal who is talking through his an external orifice here and uh, suggesting that because Fine Gael aren't in power, there aren't going to be any uh, good uh, laws passed. Now, uh, the... Uh, Tremendous amount of uh, wishes. Thanks, Diana in Dublin A, Diana in Cabin, Tealy, Michael, uh, a ton of people. Uh, and I'm really grateful uh, to them all. Mary Lou MacDonald uh, sent me a tweet. 
uh, wishing me a happy birthday. Uh, hashtag 21 again. And Mary Lou, I'd settle for 35 in a heartbeat. Even 45. In fact, now that I come think of it, 55. And hey, hold on. Let's not be greedy. 65. Actually, to be honest, 74 and do fine. So, uh, thanks, Mary Lou. Audrin uh, sent me one. Uh, oh, yeah, he's talking about something else. Now calling children by numbers. George 3. It's unbelievable. Audrin is actually leaving. He's not going to listen to the programme anymore because we in, in our family... We have fun with G2, G3 and G4. And when we're talking amongst WhatsApp or whatever, we have to have a way of of defining which George we're talking about. And this Egypt's gone off to another station. Holy suffering God. In fact, as a famous cartoon character once said, suffering socketags. What an Egypt. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Marty Whelan here, just back from the Eurovision Song Contest. Indeed, one of George Hook's great, great affections of life would be for the Eurovision Song Contest. Even the ones he can't get to see live, he, he likes to tape them and sit back. But um, I have always, uh, I've always admired George. I, G- George and I would meet from time to time in the makeup department in RTE, uh, vying for the finest makeup artist, and obviously both of us using an inordinate amount of makeup to make us look respectable for the television. But we've jigged and reeled together. We've um, celebrity managed store together, and I constantly enjoy uh, the banter with George and the crack because I think he's one of the finest men. It's my, been my great pleasure to to meet over the years. Plus, his lady wife, Ingrid, is a great fan of my radio show, and that in itself speaks volumes for the family. I also think it's fascinating that George Hook was launched on the very same week as the Bismarcker. I think that tells us a lot. George, happy 75th. Ridiculous that you're 75, and I hope we'll have a, a small libation at some stage in the future to celebrate it. But have a wonderful evening, and God bless you. Marty, thank you. He's right. As we speak, Ingrid is likely to be tuned to lyric. There was a John Wayne movie where John Wayne retires and he's he's riding off into the sunset and then he's followed by a a cavalry guy who says to him, come back, come back, you've been appointed chief of scouts. And he gives him the letter and Wayne looks at it and he says, look at those names, William Tecumseh Sherman, Ulysses S. Grant, and so on. He's thrilled. Well, I got text. And it really cheered me up. Roy Keane, Dennis Irwin, Michael Collins, Roland O'Gara, all great corkmen, the listener says, and another rebel celebrates today. Now, to be in that kind of company is pretty special. And then, lest my head get any bigger, I get a text which says, George, your ignorance is outstanding. But not surprising, considering your background. Well... (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure what my background is, but anyway, we'll be shortly talking about the Hapney Bridge, which is uh, 200 today. But in town tonight is Daniel Finkelstein, my next guest, who's a columnist uh, at uh, the Times newspaper. Because it's a big Brexit discussion at the Intercontinental Hotel in Balls Bridge tonight at 6.30. If you have time, be well worth going as a star-studded cast. Daniel, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much for inviting me. And welcome to Ireland. Thank you. 
Now, um, the issue of Brexit, we're beginning to kind of warm up to it and we're starting to worry that this might affect us. How do you see it? Well, obviously, I think if there was Brexit, it would have a serious impact on our relationship with all of our allies. And that would start with one of our closest allies, which is uh, which is Ireland. So um, it would have a serious effect. And at the moment, the British electorates are weighing up that, uh, the effect it'll have on our allies against, I suppose, the ability to get, gain greater control over things like border policy. But you've been an advisor to the Conservatives, haven't you? I have, yes, yes. <coughs> yeah. Now, if Britain were to leave, given that Cameron and the Conservative Party has said, no, we want to stay, what does that do then for the Tories and Cameron if they lose the referendum? Well, it's interesting, actually. It isn't really the whole of the Conservative Party who said we want to stay. The government has, and uh, about just over half of the Conservative Party members of Parliament have. Uh, but there are large numbers of Conservatives who don't want to uh, remain a member of the European Union. It is one of those issues that, that sort of splits British Conservatives because the enterprise and sort of internationalist perspective is probably to be inside the European Union. But on the other hand, if you do that, you lose sovereignty and control. And that's also been a part of uh, the Conservative Party. So I suppose there's always been this tension inside an enterprise party uh, that is also nationalistic, which is that the enterprise is becoming global. And as a result, uh, you get this pulling between the two parts of the party. But we're mad Europeans. You know, when I remember the euro actually came in, we had the record of being the people who adjusted to the currency fastest and the dastardly French the slowest. But the British didn't get involved at all because they kept the pound. And isn't it fair to say, Daniel, that the British have never been totally sold on Europe well, as a nation? I think that, the, that Britain does have more doubts about the European Union than other countries. And every country will have its own history and experience. I'm a, I, I'm a child of two refugees, and I've been reading about the history of you know, where my father came from in the centre of Europe. And that country uh, moved from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You know, it was controlled by the Soviets. It was controlled by the Poles. It was controlled by the Germans. Uh, and it had periods of independence. And so uh, you can see that uh, whereas Britain has had one continuous long long period of its own uh, of, of continuous government. And Ireland has its own, of course, special history. So every country, because of its own perspective, will see Europe differently. Definitely Britain has not had the experience before of yielding sovereignty and control to other European powers. And it's now debating whether that deal where we get some powers, in other words, we get some control over what happens on the continent in return for giving away some powers to other countries on the continent, we're looking at whether that deal is sensible. But um, about in the year before I was born, um, about 1940 or thereabouts, Winston Churchill flew to Paris to try and rally the French who were ready to surrender. And he effectively offered them joint citizenship, didn't he? Yes. Now, so, so here we are, 76 years later, and Britain is still unsure that it wants to be in bed with the French. Well, look, I may as well be clear where I stand. I think Britain should remain in the European Union, and one of the reasons I feel that is because you can't make a, a multilateral relationship unilaterally. You can't have relationships with other countries that they don't want to have with you, so you have to look at what others want 
and decide that you're either going to do, accept it or not. My view, Britain is part of the continent of Europe. What happens in Europe affects British interests the whole time. The example you've given is a very good one. Uh, Britain could not be a, a, a sort of uh, ignore what was happening in Poland, what was happening in uh, the, the Czech Republic, and what was happening in France and Holland. You know, it had to act in that particular case. We went to war even to make sure those countries remained uh, democratic. What happens in the continent affects us deeply. And so we have to engage with it, but we can't just engage on our own terms. We have to accept that others have their own conditions and want to say things now. I don't think, I think in many cases the European Union wants from Britain more integration than it needs and it wants to take more power centrally than we would optimally like to give it. The best deal for Britain would be a somewhat looser one. But that's not the deal we've got. It's not the deal Europe wants. The rest of Europe has got to be listened to. So Britain cannot have exactly the relationship, exactly the relationship that it wants. And maybe it's, we're not used to uh, sort of facing up to that. We can't just have everything on our own terms. So we can either take or leave the relationship we're being offered. And I think to leave it would probably be very bad for British economy and for British diplomatic power. But Britain, in a way, is a stalking horse, is it, is it not, for a number of other countries in Europe that would take uh, strength from a British departure and would then leave themselves. Like the 27-odd countries are not all joined at the hip here. Yes, I, I think that that's a very important part in our referendum. One of the reasons why uh, we will not get a better deal outside the European Union than, than it, European Union than in it. In other words, if we leave, we won't be given, as I think some people who want to leave hope, uh, some sort of great trading deal. It's because the European Union has to make are leaving fail. Otherwise, other countries will want to leave as well. And it's possible that the European project will, will um, begin to crumble, and that would be bad for British interests as well. Um, so I, I think that um, there's no question that the impact that we have on the rest of Europe is a, fee, is a factor that we need to take into account when we make our decision. But you talked very movingly about your parents, for instance. Now, when they moved, um, there, prob there probably wasn't a red carpet out for them when they came to Britain. But nevertheless, there was an acceptance that, that, that Britain was accepting people from around the world because obviously as an empire, it was doing that anyway. But now, when you look at figures like in, in the first six months of this year, another 250,000 people arrive in the United Kingdom legally because they are European citizens. Aren't, when those numbers are published, isn't that playing into the hands of the people who say, we want some kind of a border here? We can't, we can't just open our doors to everybody. Yes, I mean, some people do have an objection to the idea of a lot of people moving across Europe. My, my mother's case was special. She had been in the Belsen concentration camp, and I think people, and her, but her father was uh, in Britain, so she was able to come here. But quite a lot of people weren't and, uh, able to come here even, even after the Second World War. Um, there, there, there is, I think, um, quite a lot of confusion in Britain about what the immigration issue actually is. We don't have open borders with the whole of the rest of the world. We're having open borders with the whole of the rest of Europe. That's a different matter. Um, and when we have open borders with the rest of Europe, we gain a lot of trading benefits. And we gain a lot of benefits from very um, impressive, hardworking people who come to work in Britain. But 
while that may be something that people who, as it were, buy goods in Britain and employ people in Britain may like, uh, for those people who find their their uh, their labour competed against by possibly by cheaper people or better people who come from outside the country, uh, those people are not so happy with it. So immigration, um, both culturally and economically, is a challenge to quite a lot of people, and it, it does happen, and that is a, a big factor. It, it's a big factor in the referendum. All right, thank you so much for joining me. Columnist at the Times newspaper, Daniel Finkelstein. Tonight at 6.30, you've got time to go. The Intercontinental Hotel, they've got a Brexit summit. It's called the Brexit Briefing. Um, I've got Bill Hughes after six, going back to the 1950s with essential songs. Brendan Grace has sent me a text. Happy birthday, George. Thanks, Brendan. And by the way, I love the one from Michael Importmanach. He said, you omitted in that list of great corkmen, the greatest of them all. Christie Ring. Wow. And we just walked over the bridge today, the Christie Ring Bridge in Cork. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie uh, well, big birthday, and I'm joined now by historian and uh, the uh, mover and shaker at Pat Liddy's walking tours in Dublin, Pat Liddy himself. Pat, welcome to the programme. Ah, uh, George, I'm really pleased to be here talking to you. Now, the Hapney Bridge, 200 years ago, so that makes it 1816, yeah? Correct. It was conceived... Uh, so what you... happened? Oh, what happened? Well, bridges, of course, are to keep your feet dry essentially yeah. because we know like I mean Dublin had a ford to begin with and that's why we're Balliohaclea the town of the Hurdle Ford so the Vikings were the first to build a bridge and then as the city kind of moved eastwards uh, to find deeper water for bigger ships more bridges had to be built but up to sort of 1816 there was no bridge between what we call O'Connell Bridge today and Capel Street Bridge so right. it was an important area for people to cross between the north side and the south side. So they had to cross in a ferry, believe it or not, really? or a series of ferries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you remember the old ferry that used to go down uh, roughly where um, the Samuel Beckett Bridge is today, perhaps? No, I tried You'd, to avoid that. I oh, don't like boats of any shape. All right, fair size. enough. Well, you wouldn't have liked... Willie Walsh's boats in 1816 because they were uh, kind of condemned by Dublin Council or Dublin Corporation as it was called then. And he was told he would have to buy new boats. And uh, he said, no, a better idea would be to build a bridge. And uh, there was uh, another reason to build a bridge. There was a wonderful theatre called the Crow Street Theatre on Cecilia Street. It wasn't on Crow Street, but that's a very Dublin thing, of course. And uh, they wanted to be able to get all the, the, the people from the north side to come and attend their theatre and to be encouraged. So they were behind the bridge and a man called Beresford, who was the Lord Mayor of Dublin, uh, a very influential man of his day. And he uh, saw to it that a bridge was going to be approved of. So how were they going to build this bridge? It was a pedestrian bridge, mind you. Now, it was never intended for vehicles. So... Um, the state-of-the-art construction in those days basically was cast iron. And cast iron was uh, the baby of Cole Brookdale in Shropshire in England. Uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution and all that kind of stuff was producing all these um, 
uh, wonderful yeah. pieces of engineering. Now, just um, but but Walsh, like he was making a tidy income ferrying people across. Yes. Now the bridge is built. Poor old Walsh is out of business. Oh what my! Name? Oh, he did very well. Did uh, he? Oh, he did. Yeah, he he basically got the the lease of the bridge. And he was getting the same as he was getting from the ferry. Only more people were paying the halfpenny. They had to pay a halfpenny on the ferry. So it was just transferred from the ferry to the bridge. And he also got a kind of a golden handshake of £3,000. Which would be comfortably half a million. Yeah, half a million. million. Yeah, 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 exactly. So he was doing very well. So it was a toll bridge for pedestrians? Not at first. For 10 days, uh, they allowed free passage across and uh, the 10,000 people tried it. As soon as the toll became effective, it went down to about 300 people a day. <laughs> because now, you've got to remember here, Pat, we're talking about a halfpenny. We know what a yeah. halfpenny was. Oh, yeah. All the people uh, are uh, listening to this to know what a halfpenny was. So yes. a halfpenny was half a penny. A penny was a bit, more than a cent. Yes. Wouldn't that be right? It, it roughly so equate to just under... A cent. Yeah, but halfpenny uh, uh, then, say 1816, it'd be just something under a euro today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was very expensive. It was. Like, and you, if you went across twice a day, there's two euro gone or one euro I'm 50. surprising that people... I'm surprised that anybody paid it. Oh, well, it was a, a snobbish kind of a bridge. Oh, uh, I see. You get that. And then there were the smart guys uh, who rode a horse across because then they were no longer a pedestrian. It was only geared at pedestrians. So, right. <laughs> so to get around that, they put in kind of turnstiles at each end of the bridge and that Did prevented really? the horses. Yeah, those turnstiles were there until 2000, the year 2000. But all the while now, I mean, uh, whatever about Walsh, but I mean, Walsh's descendants presumably were running it. I mean, how long did the tolls last? Well, was, uh, 100 years. And that was... <laughs> <laughs> this is better. This is better than the toll on the M8. Yeah, they were, they were doing better than you're doing, George. The money was That's flowing in, sitting at home. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but there was a tension there, George, because... Uh, first of all, uh, the bridge itself wasn't hugely well maintained and it became a kind of a site for hoarding for advertisements and that sort of stuff. So it would right. become, in the view of Dublin Corporation, unsightly was their quote. And uh, there were plans really to demolish it and build something nicer. Now, it was a okay. beautiful ba- bridge from an engineering and an architectural and a visual point of view. It was splendid for its day. But... Uh, the Hugh Lane Gallery was looking for a home and Dublin Corporation said, oh, right, uh, we must come up with a home for it. And Edward Lutyens uh, was encouraged to uh, do some drawings and actually build a gallery in place of the Hapney Bridge right across the river. So this so, was a palatial kind of bridge, if you like, with rooms in it. But is it still at this point now, is it still the same a superstructure yes. that they built in 1816. Totally, yeah, totally. And is it the same superstructure today? Essentially it is, but about 85% of the bridge was literally taken away and restored okay, uh, right. by Harland okay. and Wolfe and others. And yeah, because I can tell you after 75 years, my superstructure is not the same. <laughs> well, there, no, but it's, and it's cast iron. 
which doesn't renew okay. itself. Uh, there's bits of you that keep on renewing. But uh, well, yes, I have cast iron in my left knee, oh, of course. Yeah, that's right. um, no, but that's interesting. So they removed the tolls a hundred years later. Yes. Now, did it play? Just a matter of interest. Did it play any role uh, in Easter 1916? There weren't snipers on the bridge or anything like that. No, no? but sniper. The Hibernian Rifles uh, crossed the bridge. Uh, that's a, a crowd of armed insurgents that we often forget about. We know the Citizen Army okay. and so on. So they refused to pay the toll going across. And the toll keeper said, no, 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 you must pay to cross this bridge. But they swept him aside. <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> done. And it was shortly after that anyway that the, the, the toll tolls. Yeah, yeah. And it's still there, it's still the Hapney Bridge. And uh, my guest, historian and owner of Pat Liddy's Walking Tours, Pat Liddy.